So how do you explain a guy like John Chow? I mean, think about it. Why would you risk your life to share the good news of God's love with people who seem predisposed to kill you? Some in the news have portrayed him as a religious fanatic, a thrill-seeking risk-taker who threw caution to the wind and paid for it with his life. Others have portrayed him as, in a way, inconsiderate. At best, he refused to respect the Sentinelese Indians' right to be left alone. At worst, he exposed them to Western diseases that might decimate the tribe. Previous attempts to make contact with the Sentinelese have been met with hostility. This tribe is known to be violent toward the outside world, so violent that the government of India banned travel to the island. In fact, seven people who have helped, who helped Chow get to the island have been arrested. Chow understood the risks. This is what he wrote in his journal. You guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. So what do you think? What was he? Religious fanatic? An inconsiderate outsider who violated the law and attempted to impose his beliefs on others? Or was he a follower of Jesus Christ who at the age of 27 on November 16th, 2018 gave his life trying to fulfill the Great Commission? Who was he? Was he crazy? Or did he take the Great Commission seriously? You know, as I thought about John Chow this week, it made me think about my best friend uh, from high school. During our college years, my best friend Tommy joined a mission team that took Bibles into Eastern Europe. Now, prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, it was illegal to take Bibles into communist-controlled countries like East Germany and Poland. And yet... During our summer breaks, Tommy would cross the borders with Bibles stuffed in a suitcase, praying that the guards at the checkpoints wouldn't open it or wouldn't figure out what those books were. He risked arrest. He risked prosecution. He risked detention behind the, uh, behind the Iron Curtain, and yet he managed to get Bibles through. I remember one time he told me that he showed up at one of these underground churches somewhere, I think it was in Poland or Yugoslavia. And he had some Bibles for this little church. And instead of each person taking a Bible, they began to cut the binding on it. And they began passing pieces of the Bible out to each person in that church family so everybody could have in their possession a piece of God's word. Was he crazy? Or did he take the Great Commission seriously? You know, here at Good News, we've had people serve in places as far away as Africa, China, in violent places like El Salvador, in impoverished places like Haiti and Mexico and the Bahamas, and just recently, just within the last month or so, I filled out a reference to help one of our college kids go to South America on a mission trip next summer. And why do we do this? Think about it. Why, why does this church family actively encourage its members to go into the world with the good news of Jesus Christ? And not just to far off places, 
Why do we encourage our members to go into their homes and their schools and their workplaces and share God's love with everyone they encounter? Are we crazy? Are we trying to impose our beliefs on other people? Or do we take the Great Commission seriously? Do we truly believe that Jesus is the hope of the world? Do we truly believe that everyone needs the opportunity to accept or reject, but just the opportunity? Remember what Jesus said. He said, go. Go. Don't don't, don't ask them to come to you. Go, he said. Go and make disciples of all nations. Not some, not the safe ones, not the ones that aren't dangerous, Not the ones that aren't poor. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, that last phrase, I am with you always to the very end of the age, these instructions weren't limited to his original followers. They're all dead and gone. His promise was to be with his followers to the very end of the age as they carry out his marching orders. Okay? That's us. This instruction was intended for all people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. Now today we're in the fifth week of our lesson series entitled Following Together. And during this series, we've been discovering how we, both as individual Christians and as a church family, can become not casual Christians, people who believe that the essence of Christianity is just, I go to church, or I attend a service every once in a while, and not cultural Christians, people who believe that the essence of Christianity is I'm a Christian provided that it's convenient and it doesn't require me to believe or think or act outside what's accepted in the culture in which I live. You see, we don't want to be casual Christians and we're not into cultural Christianity either. We want to be radically committed followers of Jesus Christ. We want a life-altering, game-changing kind of faith. Now, today's lesson is entitled, Unfinished Business. Unfinished Business. And our focus verse of this series is Romans 12, 5. It's up here on the screens. Let's all recite it together. Here we go. In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In Christ, in other words, everyone who follows Christ, though we are many and we're all different, we all have different backgrounds and different likes and dislikes, but even though we are many, we are one. We are the body of Christ. And our goal, both as individuals and as a church family, is to fulfill his purpose in the world. We belong to Christ. We are in him. And because we belong to him, we belong to each other and we need each other in order to fulfill his purpose in us and in the world around us. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us and for this opportunity that we have to read a very difficult passage of Scripture. It's stuff that that Jesus said And it's stuff that we, as a people, need to grapple with. But it's hard stuff, Father. And so it's our hope and prayer this morning that we will approach this subject with, with open minds. That we'll think well. That we'll ask the tough questions. And Father, please help us to apply what we learn to our lives. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now, 
The Bible contains four biographies of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each biography views the life of Jesus from a, a slightly different vantage point. Okay, And some are actually even geared to different audiences. For example, Matthew geared his book or his biography to a very Jewish audience. John, on the other hand, geared his book to a very Greek audience. Now today's account is actually found in three out of the four biographies. This one is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And many years ago, there was a scholar by the name of J.W. McGarvey who assembled all four of those biographies into a single chronological account, okay? It's widely accepted as probably one of the best, best combinations of, of all four books. And you'll notice on the outline that it's a white sheet with holes punched on the side that you received when you came in this morning that I'm going to be using passages from each of the three accounts in order to tell the full story. In this following order, the, the, the order that I'm following has been laid out by McGarvey. But today's account happened during the last week of Jesus' ministry. So this last week kind of rolls like this, okay? On Sunday, Jesus rides into town, in, into Jerusalem, in triumph. And adoring crowds line the streets, and they're waving palm branches, and they're shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and many people in Jerusalem at that time are wondering, could he be the one? Could he be the Messiah that was spoken of in the Old Testament? And after that, he, he goes into the temple and he drives the sellers of sacrificial animals out of the temple. And, and he does this because everybody kind of knew, it was kind of one of those open secrets, that these people were robbing people. People would come into the temple with their sacrificial animal, whether it was a lamb or a dove, and they would look at the animals and they'd say, oh, that, that animal's not imperfect. It's imperfect. It, you can't use that animal. You've got to buy one from us. And they would gouge people. Okay, and then we take their animal and sell them another animal, and then they would turn around and sell the animal. Okay, and so it was known to be corrupt, and Jesus goes into the temple and drives these people out. He he pulls his belt off and turns it into kind of like a whip, and he's and he's I mean he's righteously indignant, <laughs> and he says, "My house will be a house of prayer, but you're making it into a den of robbers." True. Hard truth. Truth that wasn't well taken. And then on Monday and Tuesday, Jesus returns to the temple each day and he's teaching the people. And, and at the same time, he's having these verbal sparring matches with the religious authorities. Now, they've already determined to kill him. They're just waiting for the right moment to strike. A moment when he's separated from the crowds. That time would come late in the evening on Thursday, and Jesus would be crucified on Friday. So there you have that kind of final week. And scholars actually believe that today's account occurred on either Tuesday or Wednesday of that week. So he's going to be arrested on Thursday, crucified on Friday. This happens on Tuesday or Wednesday. And earlier in that day, Jesus had issued a scathing denunciation of the religious establishment. And then the Bible tells us this. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away. Now notice, what, notice how it says that. It says, he left the temple and was walking away. Well, it sounds kind of redundant, doesn't it? I mean, he just said they left the temple. Why does he have to say he's walking away? Here's why scholars believe that Matthew repeated that phrase, to drive it home. Scholars believe that this was the last time that Jesus was at the temple. This leaving wasn't just walking out of the temple. It wasn't just a physical act, it was a symbolic act. This wasn't just, I'm leaving, this was, I'm leaving and I won't be back. I'm out of here. 
He had done all he could do to convince the Jewish people and their leaders that he was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. He had performed miracle after miracle. The blind received sight, the lame walked, leprosy was cured, the deaf heard, demons were cast out, and the dead were raised, and he taught the good news to the poor. Exactly the things the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would do when he arrived on the scene. And yet they refused to believe. He had done all he could to convince them. And now he's walking away. And the Bible goes on to tell us this. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. So they're walking out of the temple and the disciples start yakking about the buildings. One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, this is really odd if you think about it. Why would he do that? Why would he make some big deal out of the temple and the, and the, and the stones and the magnificence of the buildings? It wasn't like they hadn't been there before. I mean, the Bible indicates that Jesus had been going there since childhood. It makes it very clear that Mary and Joseph would take him every year. So he'd seen all this stuff. For the last couple of years, he'd taken the apostles with him. So they'd seen all this. Why are they making a big deal out of this? Since some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. Now the gifts thing I kind of understand. Because earlier they, that day, they'd been in, inside the temple, and they watched a widow give everything she had. Now they saw other people giving large amounts of money and stuff like that in the temple, but they saw this widow, and Jesus pointed her out because he wanted this to make an impression on his followers because it was such an amazing display of faith and trust in God. And they're like, man, you know, even, even poor people are willing to give, you know, to make sure this temple is supported. So what's going on? Why, why, why are they making a big deal out of this? Well, friends, you and I have to understand the mindset of Jesus' followers. One, one scholar that I read this week said this was, is one of the most Jewish chapters in the whole Bible. Because unless you, unless you have some grasp of the Jewish mindset, you don't understand. But friends, in that day, the Jewish people never doubted that they were God's chosen people. And they never doubted that one day they would occupy the place in the world which, as they saw it, God had chosen them to occupy. It would be a return to the glory of the Old Testament Jewish nation with the prophesied Messiah as their leader. Now, over time, they had figured out that they could never occupy that place by human means, but they were confident that in the end, God would directly intervene in history and send the Messiah to return them to glory here on earth. And before that day, though, in reading the Old Testament prophets, there was a strong belief that there would be a time of terror. A time when the world would be shaken to its foundations and judgment would come upon the earth. But it would be followed by a new world and a new age and new glory and they would be God's chosen people. And the temple in Jerusalem represented all that hope that was wrapped up in those beliefs. And these were beliefs that the apostles had. But Jesus had made these strange statements during his ministry that the religious leaders interpreted as saying that the temple would be destroyed at some point. And people couldn't figure it out. And the apostles were what? like, what? what is he talking about? In fact, the religious leaders reminded him that it took 46 years to build the temple, actually longer. And what a temple it was. It's known as Herod's Temple. King Herod was not a Jew. This is the same king that was alive when Jesus was born that slaughtered the infants in Bethlehem. 
King Herod was not a Jew. He was of Arab descent. He was installed as the king of the Jews by the Romans. And so in an effort to ingratiate himself to his new subjects, he decided to upgrade their temple. He began in 20 BC and construction was not completely finished during the time of Jesus' ministry. Fifty years later, they were still working on it. It was one of the greatest architectural wonders of the world at that time. The entire temple complex covered over 19 acres. Built on top of Mount Moriah, instead of leveling off the summit of the mountain, what they did was they built a massive masonry platform around the edge of that mountaintop. Some of the platform stones were 40 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. They weighed tons. People are still trying to figure out how in the world they managed to get those stones in place. Over 10,000 workmen labored on the project, and it's still considered an architectural wonder that they could quarry the stones, cut them, place these stones on the side of that mountain, and do it without heavy machinery. The temple and its porches with supporting columns were all built of white marble, which when you looked at that mountaintop from a distance, it appeared as if it was a snow-capped mountain peak. The temple itself was covered on its front side with gold plates. Okay, and the front of the temple was 90 feet tall, gold-plated, which, when it was hit by the morning sun, made it blindingly difficult to look at. The effect was as if you were looking into the very reflection of the glory of God. This was something else. This was the center, the focal point of Jewish faith. And regardless of what went on in the world around them, the temple was permanent. It was secure. It was unmovable. Which must have made Jesus' response all the more shocking. Because these guys are talking about, look at these great buildings. How in this magnificent? And Jesus says this. Do you see all these buildings? As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And I can imagine the apostles going, what? What are you talking This is God's house. This is where his chosen people worship. Not one stone will be left upon another. They must have been stunned. And I wonder, this is just me. This is not in the Bible, so don't take this as fact, okay? But I wonder if this is when Judas started thinking to himself, you know what? I think Jesus is off his rocker. I've kind of had enough of this. The Bible goes on to say this. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. Now this is interesting. Because what this tells you is as they're, they're having this conversation as they walk out of the temple. And then they go down in this valley and up this other mountain called the Mount of Olives. Which is actually higher than where the temple was on Mount Moriah. So from the Mount of Olives, you had a panoramic view of the entire temple structure and the city laid out in front of you. So they're sitting there, and it says this. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. So these four guys... And I don't know if they were like, like the other apostles were kind of sitting in one area and Jesus had kind of separated himself and these four guys decided, okay, we're going to go talk to this guy. <laughs> well, we got questions. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this happen? And you've you got to imagine from their point of view, you're talking about a cataclysmic event. The temple. Not one stone left upon another, this magnificent structure. When is this going to happen? And then what, what will be the sign of your coming in the, end of the end of the age? And they're really asking three questions. They want to know. When will the temple be destroyed? When's, when is this going to happen? Because this is just... This is mind-boggling. 
What's the sign of Jesus coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? I mean, you've you got to give us some indication of, of when, I mean, if we believe you're the Messiah, when are you going to step into history here? And when is this current age of evil and, terror and trouble, when is this going to end? When are we no longer going to be under Roman rule? And friends, what the apostles did not know, but Jesus did, was that 40 years later, in 70 AD, the Romans would finally have enough of Jewish unrest in Palestine. And they would send the Roman general Titus to Jerusalem with an army. And he would lay siege to the city. And the thing about this that made it even worse than it had to be was that Titus arrived at Passover and he surrounded the city at a time when millions, literally, of pilgrims had arrived in Jerusalem to worship at the temple for Passover. And so the population of the city was much larger than it normally is. And rather than attack the city, Titus surrounded it and simply laid siege. He waited to starve them out. The Bible indicates, excuse me, the, the Jewish historian who lived in the first century by the name of Josephus estimated that 1,100,000 people perished, either from starvation or the fighting that occurred at the end. There were reports that the starvation became so severe that people took to cannibalizing others. It was an awful scene. At times during the siege, people tried to escape. And when they were caught by the Romans, the Romans would crucify them and hang them outside the city walls so everybody knew, don't even bother coming out here because this is what happens to you. Ultimately, the Romans attacked the city. 97,000 people were taken captive. They were sold into slavery or forced to fight wild animals in the, in the arena. And at the end of the siege, Titus' army pulled down all the stones so that not one of them would be left on another. Forty years earlier, Jesus had seen it coming. And the apostles asked that question, what's the sign? What's the sign? How will we know when this stuff is going to happen? And notice how Jesus frames his response because he gives them six signs of the end. He says this, Jesus answered, watch out. In other words, he's saying, beware, be on your guard, keep your eyes open, watch out for what? Watch out that no one deceives you. No one deceives you. In other words, he's saying, deception is out there. There are false beliefs out there. You can be deceived. For many will come, he said, in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and the time is near, and will deceive many. And then he says, do not follow them. You think about it. Jesus is telling, you know what? You're asking for signs, but you need to be very careful. Because when you focus on signs, it's easy to be deceived. In fact, the only way to keep from being deceived is to stay focused on Christ and His Word. Because no one knows the exact date, so focus on being prepared whenever it comes. He says, watch out for false 
teaching because it's out there and people will claim things like, oh, I know when it's going to end or I'm the Messiah or I have a better idea or Jesus isn't really the Son of God. Whatever the false teaching is, it's out there. And he says, don't be deceived. He's not done. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Nation will war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You see, one of the signs of the end is there will be wars. There will be wars. But when you think about it, friends, there's never, at least to my knowledge, outside the Garden of Eden ever been a time in human history when there wasn't a war or a rumor of war somewhere in some part of the world. You know, in the ancient world, speaking of wars and rumors of wars, between the time Jesus said those words and the time that the Romans actually attacked Jerusalem, there were at least three times when there were rumors that Rome was going to attack between then, between those two dates. Three different times when the Jewish people expected them to come and they didn't. Third, Jesus said there will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. All these are the beginning of birth pains. See, the third sign, Jesus said, is natural disasters. Natural disasters. In fact, between the time that Jesus uttered these words in 70 AD when Jerusalem fell, there were three major earthquakes. One of them was in Pompeii. Mount Vesuvius destroyed that city. For those of you that are familiar with the book of Revelation, the city of Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake. Not only earthquakes, but there was a major famine that occurred in Rome. It's estimated that 30,000 people died at one point as a result of a famine in Rome. But there's another one. Jesus said, but before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. The fourth sign Jesus mentioned was government persecution. And you realize that the Christian church began to experience that within five years after Jesus left the earth. The very first Christian martyr, Stephen, was executed just about five years after Jesus went back to heaven. And it went on from there. Fifth, another sign Jesus gave, he said this, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. He's talking here about family betrayal. You know, one of the most tragic aspects of the fall of Jerusalem is that when the, when the Romans had them surrounded, the city divided up into different factions and they began to fight amongst themselves. It's reported that at times they would, certain factions would be fighting the Romans on one side and their brothers and sister Jews on the other side. It was a horrible situation. Sixth, at that time, many will turn away from the faith. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. This is spiritual defection. Spiritual defection. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. People will look at what's going on around them in the world and will say, you know what, I no longer believe. I'm walking away. I don't think it's real. If there was a Jesus, I don't think he's coming back. But that's just one kind of spiritual defection. There's another one. 
He says, at that time, many will turn away from the faith, but he goes on to say this, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And I think what he's referring to here is this. When you think about people like John Chow, or my buddy Tommy, or all the folks here at Good News Gathering who've gone out into the world to share the good news with others. It's love that drives outreach, friends. Christians in churches that love people reach out to them with the love of Christ. They focus out. But the problem is quite often when we see the world around us growing darker and darker, Sometimes our love grows cold and our focus turns in. And Christians in churches turn inward and they no longer focus out and reach out to people. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking. If you're like me, you're looking at that list and you're thinking Jesus has just given us an incredibly bleak picture of what it's going to be like before the end. False teaching, wars, natural disasters, persecution, betrayal, defection. And it's true, it's a bleak picture. Some scholars believe that this was just a, a, a prophecy of what would happen before Jerusalem fell and the temple was torn down. But as I look at that list, it seems to me that there's never been a time in history when this kind of thing didn't happen. Ever since the Garden of Eden, there's always been false teaching. There have been wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, persecution, betrayal, defection. Jesus isn't giving us any new signs that have always been part and parcel of life in a fallen world friends but notice what he says and I wonder what the apostles I wonder if they were just dumbfounded at this moment because Jesus is listing all of these things that just seem so horrible and so bleak and then in the middle of it he says this but the one who stands firm to the end will be circle those two words will be saved not maybe Not you could be, but if you stand firm to the end, you will be saved. And then he goes on to say, and this gospel of the kingdom will be, circle those two words again, will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Hmm. So I can imagine these apostles sitting there and they're listening to all this stuff and then Jesus says, stand firm. Stand firm. And this gospel, the good news of Jesus, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That good news will be preached in the whole world. And I can imagine these apostles going, how is that possible? It'll be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations before the end comes. And friends, the first thing I think that we can learn about this as we think about the end is this. With Christ... With Christ, I can stand firm to the end. With Christ. I can't do it on my own. But with Christ, I can.
In fact, the Apostle Paul would later write this to a church. He said, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and, underline the word and, if you would, please. Stand firm and hold fast to the teaching we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. In other words, he's saying, friends, if you're going to stand firm, you've got to hold fast. You've got to hold fast. It's the only way to avoid being deceived. It's the only way not to succumb to false teaching. Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. Well, the second thing, friends, is we think about the end. It goes like this. Despite the evil I see around me, and let's face it, friends, every one of those things Jesus listed, we see it on a daily basis, don't we? All you got to do is turn on your TV or go on the internet and watch the news and you see it all. False teaching, you can find it. Not too long ago, I had somebody sit in my office and tell me they were Jesus. Okay? They were mistaken. They didn't appreciate it when I pointed that out. Turn on your TV. There's wars. In fact, I find it fascinating that our president has been strongly ridiculed by both parties for withdrawing our troops from a foreign country. Now, you can... I'm not getting into right or wrong there but it's fascinating to me that we have been and had our people in harm's way for just about as long as I can remember in some part of the world natural disasters some of you might remember that in 2010 when we sent a mission team to Haiti they flew on the day they flew into Port-au-Prince on the morning of an earthquake that killed 200,000 people in Port-au-Prince. Persecution. Do you realize that it is estimated today that more people are persecuted for being Christians in the world than at any time in history? It's happening, folks. Betrayal. It's interesting. Last Sunday night, I had somebody sitting in my house who grew up in a foreign country behind the Iron Curtain. They talked about the fact that their grandfather had a picture of Jesus in the house and how they could not let anybody know they had it. I said, what happens if somebody found out your grandfather had a a picture of Jesus? And her words were, you lose your job, And if they really don't like you, shoot, shoot, shoot. Defection. How many times today do we see people walk away from the faith because of what they see around them? How many times do we see people's love grow cold and they no longer reach out to others because you know what? Somebody might not like it if I did that. Or somebody might criticize me. Or somebody might think I'm trying to impose my beliefs on them. So yeah, I believe, but I'm just going to keep it to myself. And friends, the second thing I think we need to think about is this. Despite the evil that I see around me, We have to remember that God still loves the world. And he wants everyone to be saved. That's why I believe in the middle of this bleak picture that Jesus painted about the end. He says, you know what? The good news is going to be preached to all the world. 
Why? Because God still loves the world. And he wants everyone to be saved. The Apostle Peter, who was sitting there on the Mount of Olives when this discussion went on, later wrote this. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. He said, there's going to be people out there who say, you know, where's Jesus? He said he was coming back. Been 2,000 years, haven't seen him yet. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. In other words, friends, as far as God's concerned, we're two days out from the crucifixion. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt away in heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. You see, friends, whether that day of the Lord, whether the end comes today or tomorrow or during my lifetime or not, it will come like a thief and I need to be prepared and you need to be prepared. And that last point is this. I must reach out with the good news of Jesus Christ. People need to hear People need to know that God loves them and he wants them to repent so that one day they too can look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Friends, if you'll take out your green connect card that you received in your bulletin on your way in. You know, as I think about this marching orders that Jesus gave to us to go into all the world and to let people know about him, back in January at our annual vision night, and if you've never been to one of those, I would strongly encourage you to come next January when we do it again. But one of the things that we do during Vision Night is we set goals for ourselves as a church family. And this last year, we we set a goal for first-time guests. And and we set a huge goal. Um, In fact, we called it a BHAG, which stands for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal. But our BHAG for 2019 was to have 684 first-time guests. 684. Now, some of you are probably wondering, why in the world did you pick such an odd figure? 684. And that's because 684 was the number of people we averaged in attendance on the average Sunday last year. And so the goal we set for ourselves was... What if every person that called G&G their church home brought one person this year? One first-time guest at some point during the year. How many people would be touched with the good news of Jesus Christ? And how cool would that be? And so that was the goal that we set for ourselves for this year. Now let me tell you where, where we are on that goal. The number of first-time guests that we've had to date is 291. In other words, we are 42.5% 
toward our goal. And some of you are probably thinking, oh man, there's only two, there's only like two months left, Jeff. And that's true. That's true. But I believe we can make that goal. Because I believe every one of you knows somebody who needs Jesus Christ. Every one of you can reach somebody with the good news. And every one of you can invite somebody to come with you some Sunday between now and the end of the year. And the cool thing for everybody here is that we all have a golden opportunity to invite people to come. It's called Roots, and it's coming up in two weeks. And it's a very, very easy way to get people to come. Because you can tell them, hey, it's an all-music service, and we weave the message of the good news into the music of that service, and you'll see it when you come. And they will too. But it's kind of nice because you can tell me what. There's no preaching that day and no teaching, okay? It's just music, so it's safe. And it's amazing the kind of impact that music can have on people. That's coming up in two weeks. And another thing is this, friends. Coming up on November the 17th is Class 401. Class 401 is our go class. And that class is designed to give you some very good tools to help you reach out to other people with the good news. It gives you a very easy way to tell your story in a way that is comfortable for you and non-threatening for the person that you're talking to. It also gives you a very easy way that you can share with them what Jesus did for them. So friends, I hope that you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, will accept his marching orders and that you will reach out to somebody that you know with God's love. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. And Father, this has been an uncomfortable lesson Because Jesus spoke about those signs at the end. And interestingly enough, he didn't tell us anything new. He just told us the way life operates in a fallen world. And so we always need to be ready. And we always need to be reaching for people who are far from you. Father, help us to do that as we wait each day for your return. For this is our prayer in Christ's name and we all agreed together and said, amen.